This is an ABC podcast. Wollongong, just south of Sydney, used to be known as Steel City. Almost everyone in town was connected in some way with steel. Vast steelworks dominated the landscape, and at night, the sky over Wollongong would be lit up by these huge buildings where thousands of people worked right around the clock. Robin Murphy moved to Wollongong in 1980 and she tried to get a job at the BHP Steelworks. At the BHP Employment Office, Robin's name was added to a list. On this list were the names of more than 1,200 other women. All these women had been told there were no jobs at the Steelworks, no jobs for women. Well, Robin and her mates weren't going to let that stand. And so began a real David and Goliath battle between a group of mainly migrant working class women and the biggest company in Australia. Robin has made a film about that fight. It's called Women of Steel. Hi, Robin. Hi, Sarah. How do you remember the city of Wollongong from when you first arrived there? I'll never forget the first night after arriving. I caught a train down and I was staying with friends and we were outside having a barbecue and uh, I looked up and the sky turned this brilliant red and I turned around and I said, oh, there must be a fire around. But it turned out to just be the normal um, lights from the steelworks and the, yeah, the chimneys that led off great big clouds of red smoke at that time. So that was a <laughs> quite a shock to the system. I know it's this huge industrial, you know, monolith, but was there something beautiful about it too? I think you could say that. I, it was like a little fairyland in some ways. And Some of my friends describe it as Dark Vader, but I think that, uh, yeah, that when the lights are on during the night, it's very pretty if, as you come down the escarpment. But, of course, these days, you know, I think we all are more conscious about having the lights on all the time at night. Could you see the steelworks from all over town? Like, did it dominate the landscape in that sense? Oh, yes. Look, the steelworks takes up, still takes up about 80 hectares. So it's an enormous area. And it was the, the real Wollongong many years prior to the 80s. People just came and camped near the steelworks after the war when the steelworks were set up. So it was huge. The whole of the Quinjilla area, Warrawong area, and everything was built around it. On both sides of the main roads, the highway going down south, it was everywhere. And BHP owned the mines uh, above on the escarpments. They owned the railways going to the steelworks and they owned the the walls so it was just one big one big BHP town mm. all of that industry going 24 hours what was the air quality like back then well you could smell the sulfur you could smell the coke ovens gas you could smell the steelworks sometimes before you saw it and um I remember a couple of times when it was really windy, you'd have to put your lights on as you drove through Five Islands Road going through the steelworks because the the pollution was dreadful, you know, black. How big an employer was the steelworks back in 1980? Well, BHP employed 
over 20,000 people when I was trying to get a job and when we started our campaigns. 20,000, that's enormous. So where were most yeah. of the, the workers coming from? Well, most, most people that worked there came from Eastern Europe. They'd been recruited there by the company, um, Turkey, Macedonia, Serbia, Croatia, part, all parts of Yugoslavia, Italy. They wanted muscle uh, at that time. And so ma- most of the people that worked there didn't have English as a first language. And most of the people that did have English as a first language were in managerial positions. Were women working there in any capacity back in the 70s? Yes, well, women got work in the 70s as a result of the women's liberation movement having a, um, they chained themselves to the gates outside the steelworks and a couple of them snuck in to see if they could do the jobs and came out and there was a bit of a media thing. And that embarrassed BHP and women did start getting work there in 1973. But the work that they did was mainly very sex-segregated work. It was the most monotonous, boring work, and that was the tin mill that no longer exists now. And what about in the the canteen and and those kind of roles too? Were were there women in those jobs? Yes, it was all women in the canteens, and there were canteens all over the steelworks. There would have been at least a dozen canteens, and the meals were amazing, though. (laughs) They were huge meals, you know, half a chicken, a roast. and <laughs> Half a chicken? You know. Yeah, no, I mean, the women really looked after the steelworks at and, that time. And why were women interested, Robin, in getting the kinds of jobs that men were doing? I think the situation for women was really bad in the Illawarra area. Most women were working in non-unionised, bad condition jobs like clothing factories. That was the main work for women. And the clothing factories sometimes were set up in someone's backyard, so it was pretty horrific stuff. And they got paid, you know, by the garment. So the idea of having work in the steelworks was extremely appealing for the women because, one, the, the the award rate was probably about three or four times higher than what they were getting in clothing factories. And they had a union presence there that gave them, you know, reasonable conditions, despite, you know, what I said before about the pollution and all those sort of things. Um, it was important to to have that sort of work because for most of the women, they needed money. And so what had been happening when women you know, particularly, I guess, from those migrant backgrounds who might have been more familiar with that kind of heavy industry work in their in their homelands, when they would go down to BHP and, and look for the kind of work their husbands and brothers and fathers were doing, what would happen? The women put their names down in the steelworks when they arrived in the country, thinking that they would get work because they were all used to working uh, on their farms or you know, doing heavy work on in labouring and things like that. So there was an expectation that they could do the work and that they would get work. But BHP told women that there were no jobs for them. And as you said earlier, they put them on a separate list. And that list was just kept in the dustbin, so to speak. It, you know, I went for a job at the steelworks many times and saw men being employed when... I wasn't employed, and the man would get the job within a week or so, and I'd, I was left there waiting. I mean, some of the women had their job, their names down for 10 years. 
So for some of the women, they had to, if they couldn't get work in a clothing factory in Wollongong, they caught a bus up to Sydney to try and get work in factories up there. What was the first protest that you and other women did uh, against this fact that you weren't being given the kind of jobs you kept applying for? What was the first thing that you all did? Well, I was in the Working Women's Charter and there'd been this situation where a man had employed 40 women over six months uh, and he was taking them upstairs for a medical, so to speak, and um, that hit the front page of the local Mercury. This was a sexual Uh, harassment situation. It was sexual harassment, yes. He was, you know, it was a medical upstairs in his bedroom. And um, one of the women luckily had union parents who took it to the union and the South Coast Labor Council. And he was pretty much run out of town. But as a result, we believed because of the high unemployment of women that, you know, women were bearing the brunt of that high unemployment by things like sexual harassment on the job. So we organised through the Working Women's Charter a public meeting on sexual harassment and on unemployment so that we could do something about it. And that's when we set up the Jobs for Women Action Committee and we decided that we were going to campaign for work at BHP because they were the major employer. And we knew, as as you said, there was this separate list of women on the company books that was just gathering dust. So, yeah, we thought it was important to campaign for the right to work in the steelworks. You, so you that was the first action. <laughs> you set up a, a tent outside the employment office. Where did you get the idea for that from? Well, one of the women that was in the Working Women's Charter just suggested, well, let's, you know, set up a tent embassy like the Aboriginal tent embassy in Canberra. And we had three or four tents at the bottom of the stairs as you go into into the main part of the steelworks from the train station. So it was great. The trains would be coming in and hundreds of steelworkers would be getting out. And so we had leaflets in about six different languages. And so we'd be handing out leaflets. And then about 10 minutes later, the shift that had just finished work would be coming back and we'd be handing out leaflets and gathering petitions. We gathered over 2,000 petitions from steelworkers just in the two days and one night we were there, which well, was fantastic. What kind of comments did you get? I mean, were most people that you spoke to, most men receptive? Oh, absolutely. I think that um, most of the migrant men had felt forms of discrimination on the job anyway as new arrivals to Australia And I think they related to what we were talking about and what we were campaigning about. You know, I remember one group of men, as they were coming off shift, they'd obviously heard about about what we were doing and they all linked arms and started, you know, chanting, jobs for women, jobs for women. So it was great. You know, we got fantastic feedback. I mean, there was one or two people that came up and said, oh, I don't believe you should be working here, but... They also happen to be management people, so we weren't surprised at that. <laughs> what was it like the night that you stayed in in that tent to, at the protest? Oh, well, we didn't get any sleep, that's for sure. I mean, it was pretty much two days, one night, no sleep. It was so exciting. You couldn't sleep. 
I couldn't sleep. I mean, I went, I went to, you know, in between shifts to lie down to sleep, but it was also we were getting to know some of the women as well, sharing stories. And the second day, a whole lot of women started joining because there was a lot of press on what we were doing. The media, you know, showcased the, what we were doing. So the migrant women were hearing about it and they were also hearing about it from the leaflets their husbands were bringing home and it, it spread like wildfire. You know? And there were just women coming all the time and people were dropping off food. I had the best spaghetti bolognese I've ever had in my life. It was just, it was an unbelievable experience. It was one of the greatest moments, I think, <laughs> of of the campaign. You were planning a, a big public protest, a street march through Wollongong. What did BHP announce just before that was going to happen? Mm, well, that's about five or six months, eight months later. We'd had public meetings. We'd had a few protests outside the steelworks. And we'd had some negotiation with the anti-discrimination board and the company about trying to employ the complainants because we'd lodged complaints with the anti-discrimination board. And the company had actually started to employ women and, of course, they stopped saying there were no jobs for women, but they wouldn't employ the complainants. And it was just, I think, just the media pressure embarrassed them so much that in November, I think about two days before we had the march, they agreed to employ us all, all the complainants. So it was a great victory. Did you have the march anyway? Of course, of course, <laughs> because, yeah, because, I mean, the other thing was that we believed we needed to run a class action and we didn't think it was a good idea to have individual women putting complaints in. We, and we knew this list was out there. So the more we demonstrated and made it public, the more we thought women would join the campaign. After these eight or nine months of, of protest, Robin, you were offered a job at the Steelworks. What was the yes. first job you had there? My first job was uh, a second-class welder, which I thought was hilarious because, you know, <laughs> We often have been treated as second-class citizens, and here I was doing second-class welding. I was on a welding machine, and um, it, there were these huge rolls that were turned by lathes, and there was an automatic welding machine, and you just had to fill it up with flux and, you know, make sure that the there was no flashing of the world and then you had to chip off the slag that was created from the world. It wasn't a difficult job at all. But what I did was I enrolled myself in tech to do oxyacetylene and electric art welding. Um, and there was, I remember at the time the guys had a bet on because I was going to tech all the time whereas a lot of the guys was, had slackened off and had been doing the course for a while. So they had this bet that I'd finished before the, the blokes. And um, I painted a women's liberation symbol on the mask. Um, yeah, because, I'm, you know, I was quite open about what I was on about. And what and, did the um, other men make of you, those other second-class and first-class welders that you were working alongside? Um, I, I think they were really great. I mean, there were some that would say, oh, you know, don't pick up the hoses, I'll pick up the hoses, you know, the welding hoses. And I used to adamantly say, no, no, thanks very much, but 
this is my job and I have to do this. So sometimes I, their attempts at helping, you know, were, were flattened by me rather than anybody else. But I, I think generally, you know, I worked with a whole bunch of guys from all different languages and, you know, they were fantastic. You know, I learnt their language. I tried to learn as many languages as I could. You know, we'd all hang around and share cigarettes. I used to smoke then. You pretty much had to if you wanted to talk to anyone. Did so. you smoke on uh, the job or just at, at lunch oh breaks? Oh, God, yeah. Oh, no, you smoked, you know, you'd do a job, you'd do a welding job and you'd be waiting for the crane to come with another job and someone else would come up and you'd chat, chat, chat and you'd exchange cigarettes. I ended up having to carry a packet of cigarettes in my pocket so that I made sure I also offered cigarettes to people. But <laughs> Tell me more yeah. about the, the space you worked in when you were doing that welding. Well, it was a machine shop that I, the first job I had, it was huge, like a huge, I mean, about, if you imagine 10 barns, you know, put together and on either side, way up above about, 50 feet up above, you had these tracks like rail tracks and cranes would go back and forth along the machine shop lifting various jobs like the rolls that I welded and they'd have a hooter. So you'd always hoot if they were coming anywhere near people and you'd have to move away, and which was another chance for a cigarette. And, um, yeah, it was a hive of activity in different areas, like there was um, a fitters area, there was an assembly area, there was um, a maintenance area, there was a shop that you used to go to, you know, down the bottom of the stairs to get parts. Yeah, so it was... Um, a whole universe. Was your head, it was. Would your head be ringing at the end of a shift? Like, I just think all that input, the sounds, the smells, the... the the sights of the welding, like, was it a bit sensory overload by the end? Well, uh, I remember the machine shop was right next to an old foundry and the smell coming out of there was revolting. I'll never forget that. Well, what's a foundry smell like? Oh, very heavy sulphur smell, but a smell like, I mean, I remember... I went out one one evening with just with some friends and probably had a little bit too much to drink. And the next day, I went into <laughs> to do some work. I had to go home. The smell was so revolting, <laughs> mind you. Might have been the hangover. It might have it's been the smell a or combination. combination. <laughs> it was awful. Um, you know. After about eight months of you working there as a welder and other women working in the steelworks, you got news that there was. Uh, a downturn in the steel industry and you were likely to face retrenchments. What what action did you and other women start taking when it looked like you were likely to lose the jobs you'd fought so hard for? Well, we basically could see that the retrenchments were on the, on the, on the wall and what we did was we went up to the anti-discrimination board and re-lodged or opened up our previous complaints, um, which meant that we were then going down the road of possibly going to court. There were negotiations with the steelworks. They refused to budge. We went to court. But we also had to get legal aid. Legal aid took us 14 to 18 months, uh, five appeals. Um, I actually ran into Neville Rand on the street. Uh, the first day of court, and 
I just went up to him and said, hey, Nev, are we going to get legal aid? <laughs> and uh, he said, never mind, something good is going to happen. I think that was his words, something like that. He didn't say yes, he just... <laughs> And, of course, a couple of days later it was announced that we got legal aid. So that meant we went to court. There were 23 days in court, 23. It spread over quite a few years. When you'd be travelling from Wollongong for the bits of the case that had to happen in Sydney, how would you and the other women go back and forth? Yeah, well, we all we all caught the same train and pretty much take over a carriage and share our food. We'd have, you know, lunch and all the women were used to packing their own things. We'd exchange food. It was, it was, um, yeah, no, it was great. Slabodinka, um, I'd never had avocado before. I'd never had sama before. <laughs> so, so big cultural exchange and lots of joking. Um, I think when you don't all have the same language, what happens is you usually talk about sex. And uh, <laughs> donka, donka would say, uh, and there's a word for having sex, which is jiggy jig. In the, the steelworks, we all joke about, oh, you jiggy jig, well, you know, and um, Donka was stirring, stirring us up. She'd go on about John Baston, who was our barrister, and she'd try and line up, you know, us single women to have jiggy jigs with John Baston and everyone <laughs> would just, it was hilarious. It really was. I mean, it was a bit crude. It would sound crude to someone that didn't understand, but there was just that sisterly camaraderie that really sort of, you know, Made every train trip such fun. Yeah, you and then won that first tribunal. You you won that part of your battle, but then BHP appealed. So you were on another set of of legal negotiations and, and off to court. Did that drag on? Well, it went on for years, and it was actually something that we questioned in the legislation that companies should not be allowed to drag a case through. Um, 1986 was the first judgment and it wasn't until 1994 that we finally won. That's eight years of, I mean, mind you, we were we were navigating laws that had never been tested before, which meant that may have uh, lengthened the period. But eight years, it's just disgusting really that uh, a company can strewn out court case for that long. But you did finally win, Robin. And, I mean, were you and maybe your lawyers surprised that you'd taken on BHP, this fairly, you know, ragtag group of migrant working class women, unemployed, using legal aid, and had managed to beat BHP? I don't know whether surprise is is the word that we'd use. I think it's, well, it was daunting. Look, when I first tried to get a job at the Steelworks, I never thought I would ever get a job, least of all take BHP to court and win. So it was, you know, it was quite a fantastic feeling. But, look, it's instilled confidence in me that you can do things, that you can make change. And, I, you know, I think that's the important aspect of it that, you know, people always say, oh, don't mess with Robin, you know, <laughs> she'll take you to court. <laughs> what but we- that, that's, not the way, that's not the way I am. It's, it's just that uh, I do have a strong feeling of confidence in fighting for you know, injustice because of it. Of course, you know, you you win and, of course, you feel like you can win. Yeah. What were your emotions like? Oh, yeah. Look, the first the first uh, hearing 
when I was uh, up in, on the witness box. Um, uh, I was cross-examined for a few hours and it, it was it was an awful feeling. I mean, I never show my emotion up front in front of people, but as soon as I got out of that witness box, I just went to the toilet and bawled my eyes out. It was, uh, it was very intimidating for me. So imagine what it was like for the migrant women with, you know, uh, just would have been awful. We didn't want it to be like that. And that's that was why we needed to run that representative case. So it began with 34 women, but it became yeah. a larger class action and a- yeah. applied to a, a much larger group of women. How many women in the end were affected by that win? Well, there were 709 women who became part of the class action. So that's 740 43. But, I mean, it had huge ramifications everywhere. We started getting calls from students at, you know, a local high school saying, my teacher won't let me do woodwork and I'm going to take them to the anti-discrimination board. And then, and, But it also, it had ramifications across all industries throughout Australia, not just New South Wales. It was a really important case to win. And I think, you know, even if we hadn't got legal aid, I I would think that the barrister and lawyers would have worked for nothing anyway because it was such a significant case and long overdue. Mm. Compensation was part of the of the win at the end of that legal process. How did you spend your money, Robin? I didn't know how to spend it initially, but I knew I wanted a nice fishing line and a comfortable bed. You know, I'd got a, a Sally's Salvation Army bed so I was and I've got a bad back so uh, that was yeah I got a sealy posturepedic <laughs> bed <laughs> that was great and then I, uh, I I didn't know what to do you know I thought oh I go on a holiday or what will I do but then I thought no you know and I, I used what I had as part of deposit for a house podcast broadcast and online. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Robin, after you won the right to continue working at the steelworks to be re-employed there, did you go back, back into your second-class welding job or what did you do? No, no, that was very sad. I would have loved to have done that. I went back as a a trades assistant and I I had a job as a labourer and I had various jobs. I was a grease monkey, I was a crane chaser. What's a crane crane tracer? Well, you basically sling... You know, the cranes lift heavy uh, material and objects uh, and for them to lift, for the cranes to lift uh, any material, it has to be slung by ropes that will bear the weight of of that lift. So, yeah, I chased the crane. When the crane needed a lift, I'd go and I'd get the right slings, I'd sling the load and then I'd signal the crane to go up, down. How would across. you do that signalling? Was there walkie-talkies or, or how would you communicate? No, ra- no. <laughs> no radios at that time. It was all hand signals. And that was the other really interesting thing about working in the steelworks 
um, because we all spoke different languages, you had to be very clear what you were doing and, you know, to signal up, you'd have one finger and you'd twirl it around and put your hand up and down was the opposite and, you know. Um, you'd really so want to make sure you had that signal right or you're on the same page when you're hauling massive amounts of steel. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> but we also, I mean, amongst all of us, we had hand signals for a whole lot of different things, you know. I mean, if someone was way up in the crane and you were down on the shop floor, you, you might signal and you'd put your hands to your mouth to say, oh, I'm going to have something to eat or um, you'd, you'd sort of lift your wrist like you wanted to have a coffee or if you wanted to go to the toilet, you'd hold your nose and <laughs> pretend to be pulling a chain and, you know, like there were different hand signals. I mean, it was really, you know, you have to invent when you can't all speak the same language. But I think we did really well in communicating. <laughs> What did you enjoy most about the years that you were working at the Steelworks? Which part of the day did you look forward to most? I didn't look forward to any particular part of the day. I always loved chatting with people, so, you know, breaks were always good. But uh, the things I enjoyed was just the challenges, you know, learning to learning to weld, um, you know, knowing different parts of a toolkit, the hammer, the chisel. You know, when I was a trades assistant, just helping the the tradie with tools, and often you would actually doing the work, and the tradie might be having a fag, having a cigarette, a fag, you know. So it's um, you know, I um, I enjoyed all of those challenges of working in areas that I wouldn't have ever thought of doing in my life. Tell me about the the crib room and what went on in there, Robin. <laughs> Well, the crib room, so, you know, the the honker would go and you had a morning crib break and then a lunch break. So someone would get out cards and you have a game of cards with your coffee. The card game we played was Scala Quarente, which is uh, a scale of 40 in Italian. And uh, when I was first there, you know, I think I got set up by some of the guys and there was a bit of wine that got snuck in now and then and um, someone gave me coffee. They said, I'll have, a, have one of my coffees and, of course, it was wine. But, um, you know, they, there was a lot of camaraderie and people would share food and I love food. <laughs> and, you know, the, the, you know the, I remember the first time I tasted a Spanish tortilla was in the crib room and salma, which is mince rolled in, in cabbage leaf and beautiful with uh, paprika and chorizo and there'd be all these foods and it, it was, yeah, a real multicultural, you know, hub of activity <laughs> and people would be joking. They'd be quiet, people in the corner really quiet just reading the paper. I was a union delegate as well, so I used that time to you know, talk to people about any issues they had on the job as well. Did you socialise together outside of work? Um, not very often for me. I, I wanted to, but, you know, most of the people working the steelworks had families, were married, and we had a few get-togethers, Christmas and, um, you know, special occasions. But sometimes after night shift, I made the mistake of going to the pub after night shift one one morning and, oh, never again, you know. Like what, was some stiff a, competition was there? Oh, <laughs> I probably drank a little bit more then than I do now. <laughs> probably, 
<laughs> but I, I think I was also very cautious of the fact that I'm, you know, I'm, because I was a single woman and a lot of the men were married men, I was always a little bit cautious about making sure I, you know, did the right thing and and also made sure they did the right thing too. Was there anything uh, that happened on the in the factory in the steelworks given that there were women suddenly entering what had been a very male domain and this is very much so australia early 1980s were there women who suffered sexual abuse and harassment when they started yes. working there yes of course um you know um of course there were quite a few cases of sexual harassment and and you know, various forms of discrimination, like particularly when we first started, supervisors setting us up for really, really hard jobs. Um, you know, I remember the supervisor when, when I was welding, he said, oh, I want you to weld the lug onto that roll. It's, you know, it was about a um, two, two or three tonne really heavy roll. He says, oh, that lug has got to be lifted by the crane. And I thought, that's not right. You know, I'm only just learning welding and I'm going to have to join that lug, you know, the lifting lug on top of the roll. I just started doing tech and, you know, like I, it was a setup. Mm. But I, ha- I, I gave it a go and then I called in one of the other welders to check because I, I thought it was a setup. Some of the other women got set up, being taught, like, you know, being told to go up to really high very high areas and one woman um, was given a job right at the top of the blast furnace which is about 16 floors and asked to sweep the crane tracks like there was no safety rail there was nothing there and she was scared of heights so we had to continually be in contact with the union about things like that and sexual harassment there it was I think the company was tried very hard not to appear to be discriminating against us because they knew we'd take them to court again. (laughs) But, um, you know, individuals were quite nasty to some of the women and I know, you know, one of the women had to get her her boyfriend to um, come into the steelworks and do something about it. And, And it was hard because we were all in different sections. We were no longer together again as we had been, but we did try and maintain a, a network of keeping, you know, of contact with each other uh, and we did call for a couple of meetings, women's meetings within the union as well. So we made attempts to try and deal with some of those. Not successfully though, you can't, I mean, you're looking at a major cultural change in attitudes towards women in the workforce. The drive that you had right from 1980 when you first went to get a job at the steelworks to stand up for what you believe in what you felt was right did you see that in your own family growing up robin is that where it comes from look i think my family taught me some really good basic principles about justice and indirectly in one way i mean my dad had been a teacher in the bush, I was only young at the time. I didn't realise what he was teaching me till I'd made another film about that little area called Bellbrook. But, for example, Dad, um, you know, he ran a one 
a one-teacher school with about 14 kids that would ride their horses into the school um, and they were all different classes. And so he organised a joint sports day with the local mission school, which was just up Nulla Nulla Creek. This is in the Kempsey area. And what happened was all the white people pulled their kids out of the school and Dad was really pissed off big time about that. Um, and uh, that, I think, you know, incidents like that where he stood up for racist attitude have left a mark on me. And also, I think, you know, I had, I've got an Irish background, being a Murphy, you have to have an <laughs> Irish background. And uh, I learned a little bit from my grandmother about the struggle in Ireland for independence, for, you know, the Republican uh, movement. And I, I actually went out of my way to find out about that. So there were a few things that propelled me on. And then when so you when you came to being a teenager, what in politics really grabbed your attention? What was going on in the world then? Yeah, well, I mean, in high school, the Vietnam War was happening and conscription, which I was totally opposed to. We had a group at high school against the war and um we, I remember we, we tried to find out that it was called the Australia Reform Movement and there was a, a meeting close to where we lived and some other school friends and I decided, well, let's go and suss these people out because they put a big ad against the war in the paper. And we arrived there and uh, we were met by people in penguin suits and cocktail dresses and I mean, we were there, we were sort of in jeans and duffel coats and I thought, oh, no, nah, <laughs> that's not the right, <laughs> that's not the right uh, group that well, I'm looking for. And then I went to a high school teaching in Sydney and it was lots of other, you know, young people like myself that were radicalising around the war in Vietnam. So that's, you know, that sort of basically propelled me into other political things. I joined a group called Resistance, which then became metamorphosed into a socialist workers' party and there were lots of things happening. It was the 60s, early 70s. The women's movement came along. I got involved in that. So, yeah, these were things that that um, drove me. I, I what, was, what, did, what did your parents make of this new activity? <laughs> well, I told them it was education, that I needed to do these things because we were studying modern history at, at school. And I said, look, these people are having forums on the Russian Revolution. I need to know what's going on. And so it's a little bit of um, probably bullshit on my my part, partly, but not really. I think, you know, like I was educated uh, through political organisations, but it was when I got arrested in a moratorium that they really sort of pulled the pin and said, you're not going there again. And You got arrested. How, how, was, that, was that a phone call to let them know that that had happened? How did yeah, they find out? No, well, mum saw it on TV. Oh, actually, her neighbour saw it on TV. Even worse. And then she said, Gloria Manning told me that, you know, <laughs> you were on the TV getting dragged by the police. I mean, there were hundreds of us. We, it was a sit-in outside the Attorney General's office from memory, and everyone got arrested. There were hundreds of us that got arrested. We did nothing. We just sat there. But the funny thing was that when when they finally went to court, Dad was adamant, I'm going to get the best lawyer for you, you know. He actually came to, 
he came around and he, you know, has always been supportive and they're both very proud. They were both very proud of what I did eventually. How did you find your way from activist politics into film school, Robin? I moved, I moved out of home and I was living, um, actually I was living above the Third World Bookshop in Goulburn Street in Sydney and I was quite active in politics and so I just, went to a Sydney Filmmakers Co-op workshop and um, I made a film um, about a friend who she hadn't had a nervous breakdown. She, she and her husband weren't getting on, but the doctor had just prescribed Valium for her and said, oh, you know, you're having a nervous breakdown. <laughs> and I thought that was disgusting, so I made a film about it um, and... Uh, that's how I started with films. And you were because in... I wanted to say something. Yeah, I wanted to say something. You were in the first intake, I think, of the Australian Film and Television School. Um, you know, just one one of two women. Is that right? Yes. 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 Gillian and myself. Gillian Armstrong. It's <laughs> impressive company. So you're right at this sort of really exciting starting point of Australian film. Why then did you go for a job? the Port Kembla Steelworks in the first place. Robin, why not stay in film? Well, I had, I mean, after I'd been at the film and television school, I was successful. I'd made a few films at the school. One was about girls' homes. I, most of the films that I've made have had the thrust of women's rights in them anyway. So that was driving me as well. But once I'd finished at the film and television school, I got one grant to make a film on prostitution and I just think I probably picked the wrong group of women to make the film with. Um, It ended up a big mess. Uh, Sometimes that's what happens in film collectives. But it was a learning for me as well. And I got work in, uh, I I worked in the, the ABC children's programs in Melbourne for about six months and it wasn't what I wanted to do. I then worked in commercial TV, just assistant editing, and I was still involved in politics uh, in this group, the Socialist Workers' Party, and they were really a university student-based organisation and around about the late 70s they decided that they wanted to put more focus on industrial work. So I thought, yep, that's a good idea. I think that's a great idea. And um, I put my hand up and went down to Wollongong. Um, But also um, their focus was to try and work more with working class women. So that just fitted exactly what I wanted to do at the time. So that's what I did. It was politics that was shaping your filmmaking and then what shaped your decision to go and work at the Steelworks that you stayed at for... 30 years or so. Yeah. When it came time for you to leave the steelworks completely, why did you also choose to leave Wollongong? Well, I'd lived in Wollongong for, you know, about 30 or so years. And uh, I'm also very conscious about the changing climate. And my best friends were moving out, and I went, ah! Um, and I always wanted to move south. And I'd start, I actually started to pick up my camera and film the women. And I knew I couldn't, I couldn't make the film while I was still working at the Steelworks. It was just, 
I needed to focus, the full-time focus to do that. So, yeah, I, I decided I'd better go somewhere nice and quiet where I can really focus on the film. And, yeah. Where did you end up? So I'm in Nelligan now, which is near Batemans Bay. It's really peaceful. We've got no neighbours. <laughs> Not that I'm antisocial, but it's just that um, it helps when you've got a little bit of solitude when you're trying to focus on a film. I, I can tell just from... What's, what have been the patterns across your whole life, Robin? You're a joiner and you're an organiser. So when you moved to to the bush, what community groups did you get involved with straight off? Well, there's only, a, you know, it's a really small little village, Nelligan, and there's only one one group really, and that's the Rural Fire Service. So I joined the brigade pretty much as soon as we moved here. And, and that's got a fun, funny twist to it. Uh, Sarah, because when we tried to get jobs at the steelworks, I'd also tried to get a job in the fire brigade. But at that time, back in 1980, we naturally, women naturally have more fat on them than men. But when I went for the test to try and get a job in the fire brigade, I failed because of that fatness. The pinch test, you know, around the around the tummy, Um, So it was funny actually joining the Rural Fire Service um, and I I sat back for a few months, you know, and then I thought, oh, no, I'm going to actually become a firefighter. So I did the training and now I'm helping other people join the brigade and helping train them and also encouraging lots of women to get involved in the Rural Fire Service. What were things like for you with last year's fire season, with the fires that started coming through in summer 2019? Mm. Well, I mean, I think it's the worst fire we've all experienced ever in this country. It was um, it was horrific. I, I remember I was on strike teams up in Milton area, which is just north of Nelligan, and we were down the bottom of Pigeon House Mountain where there's a beautiful rainforest and the rainforest was burning. I think that's when I realised this is a huge fire and Mother Earth is really angry and this is unstoppable. And, of course, um, you know, I, I played a role of we lost the captain of our brigade sort of he resigned just before all of, all of this happened, or just when this was happening, the Karawan fire. I mean, he'd been in the fire brigade for 47 years and he, he just couldn't do it anymore. So we were in a brigade where we had no captain. The deputy captain was out on an excavator, you know, digging trench lines to try and stop the fire. So it was all young and new people, apart from me, I'm, not, I'm 70, um, new people in the brigade, so it was really challenging and we just did what we could and we, you know, I just, it's sort of like a bit like a nightmare now having come through the other side, but when I reflect on it now, look, nobody was killed in our area, no one got burnt, so that was a great outcome. We lost about seven houses and I know there's still a lot of anger uh, about that and and when people are angry they blame other people and I think that you know we need to take a step back and just the enormity of, of this fire 
and how I, I believe we've created it, that climate change is here. And, um, you know, we're still getting over it. And it's really hard to, it's really hard to know how we can bring the community together again. But it's definitely something I'm thinking about all the time um, because I know we're all very much still split apart and still, you know, I mean, we've got members of our brigade that lost their house and they're totally traumatised. It's going to take them a long time to get over that. Yeah. In the, the midst of that three-month or so fire season where you were actively involved day after day of, of trying to protect people and homes from the fires, you were also finishing this film. Have you been able to show it to the women that feature in it, the women that were involved in that struggle with you back in the 80s? Well, um, when the fires came, I, I had to drop the film and um, thank heavens I've got, there's a great collective of filmmakers uh, that have been involved in Women of Steel and they just they just had the film ticking over and doing all sorts of things, uh, some editing and music. But, yeah, the awful thing is we sort of finished the film. We did a virtual mix. We did eight versions of the mix for the Sydney Film Festival. We haven't done the final mix and I haven't been able to show any of the women. Uh, I've been able to send a link to three of them who have internet so they've been able to look at it. But for all the other women, all of the Macedonian women, the Turkish women, um, the Greek women, they haven't seen it. They have no idea what's in it because of COVID-19. It's very frustrating. I've been trying to get uh, some of the women's families to show it to, to the women. And, yeah, it's been really difficult to show them. Well, I really hope that once covid is over, you can hold a really big screening party with lots of fantastic food and, and memories and sharing in Wollongong and, and have that night and show it to everyone. Yes, it will be a big celebration when that happens, Sarah. Uh, there's a lot to celebrate in your story, Robin. Thank you so much for sharing it with us on Conversations. Thanks, Sarah. On air, online, and on the ABC Listen app. This is Conversations with Sarah Kanoski on ABC Radio. You can subscribe to the Conversations podcast. To find out more, just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. Filmmaker and former steelworker Robin Murphy was my guest on Conversations today. And you can rent Robin's film, Women of Steel, at the Sydney Film Festival website. That film's going to be available until midnight on Sunday. We'll put a link to that Sydney Film Festival website at the Conversations website. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. listening to a podcast of conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au/conversations.
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.